start a series on Haggai, and we're going to be journeying through some Sundays and Wednesdays. Uh, it's a very short book. It's one of the minor prophets. It's one of only three minor prophets that deal with uh, the Jewish people after they return from the exile. Now, I want to talk just a little bit of history with you because the Old Testament, if you don't understand the Babylonian exile, so much of our Old Testament revolves around this 70-year event. And it really was more than a 70-year event. So the nation of Israel reached its climax of power and influence under the reign of Solomon, but they had a division, and over years they became a weaker nation. And when the Babylonian Empire was raised up, uh, the Babylonian, the Babylon was in modern-day Iraq, and it took over the Middle East. And in order to dominate the culture of the people that they were over, they would take the leaders first and take the influencers. We talked about this in the book of Daniel. And they took them on a very long journey from Jerusalem to Babylon. I want to show you a map uh, on the screen. And you'll see that on your left is Jerusalem. And all the way to your right is Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq. Ended up that, we'll show another map to just give us some further definition. This was about 500 years, 600 years before Jesus came to earth. And this was a very defining uh, part of Jewish culture. And the, the, the statistics are really staggering because hundreds of thousands of Jewish people were taken to Babylon. And then the king Cyrus of Persia in 538 B.C. decided to let some of them return. But of 500,000 or hundreds of thousands of people who went, took this long journey that you see on the map from Jerusalem to Babylon, you can go to the next slide, only 50,000 of them returned to Jerusalem or to Judea. And when they returned, they found a land that was in disrepair, a land that was dark. And that is the context in which we will journey through the book of Haggai. Here these people return. The first group returned, as you know, from Nehemiah and rebuilt the walls. But they came back to a land where their glory was gone. It's so interesting that David and I didn't coordinate his talk. But it is so true, David, that our history books are filled with kingdoms that rise and fall. And that's why as people of faith, we don't put faith in our government. We don't put faith in nationalism. Patriotism is a good thing civically, but spiritually it will let you down. It's good for us as a people and as a nation, but spiritually we put our hope in the principles of God that thrive under any type of government or any type of social arrangement. The kingdom of God will be advanced in the hearts of the people. And so here that... When King Cyrus released the Jewish people to make the long journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem, they came and, and they found that the population was gone, the city was in ruin, Jerusalem that used to be their crown city now lay in rubble. Could you imagine how demoralizing it would be if all of us were taken out of Nashville and then just a few of us returned and, and we saw that the stadium was falling apart? which isn't so hard to imagine after that debacle yesterday afternoon. And downtown was empty. 
and all the glass was broken, the things that made us proud civically, not to mention the spiritual aspects that were here for these Jews. These things were gone. They were almost disrespected. How demoralizing that might have been. And so they went and they rebuilt the, the walls. And as any society does when they begin to rebuild society, they immediately want to rebuild the spiritual institutions. And so what they did is they laid, they, they repaired the foundation of the temple and they repaired the altar within the first two years of returning to Jerusalem. So they repaired the foundation and they repaired the altar. And then here is a remarkable fact. Then the work stopped. Just like that. They, they started to rebuild the temple and then it stopped for 14 years. There was no activity. The people began to settle themselves. They began to build their homes. They began to, uh, to reignite this life that once was and tried to reinvigorate the culture. And all that was at the temple was the foundation and the altar. And that's where we pick up because Haggai was a prophet to these people. There's a couple of main characters in the Bible, of, uh, excuse me, in this particular book, and it's Haggai. And we see in verse 1, and let's start in verse 1 of Haggai chapter 1. And it says this, this, this is, uh, starts off and it says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheathel, I can't, sorry about that, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Zezekiah. <laughs> that was not right. Okay, that was so embarrassing. Uh, wow. That's not even funny. Thank you for laughing. And this is what the Lord Almighty said. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then, verse 3, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. The word of the Lord came, and we're going to pause there. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. If you're taking notes, Ezra refers to Haggai twice. You can write this down, Ezra chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. But I want us to look at Ezra chapter 6. Let's go straight to there. There's Ezra 5, 1 and 2, but Ezra chapter 6. Ezra talks about Haggai, and he says this, So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah. So the people prospered under the preaching of Haggai as he prophesied. I wanted you to know this because you're going to see through this passage today that the preaching and the word of Haggai wasn't an enjoyable word for them to hear. And it wasn't soothing to the ears. And it wasn't just um, a spiritual pat on the back. It was a confrontational in-your-face rebuke. And there are times that we need the Word of the Lord through the man of God, and it needs to be confrontational, and it needs to be something that elicits change in our life. And that will prosper us, and that will bless us when he is hearing or she is hearing from the Lord. So we go back to, to verse We're going to read 1 through 11 to give us context today. So starting again in verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people, talking about the Jewish exiles, say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, and this is what made them prosper according 
according to Ezra chapter 6. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Haven't we all felt that way at the end of six? You earn wages only to put them in a purse or put them in your pocket with a hole in them. Money here, gone. Let's hopefully get to the next paycheck. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. I'm in verse 8. Go up into the mountain and bring down timber and build the house. He's talking about the house of the Lord so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains of ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the field and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on labor of your hands." And there's several things that I believe the Lord wants to bring out to us through this passage. Haggai was a prophet in a difficult time. Can I tell you that you need the word of the Lord in times of difficulty? That's not a time for to shrink from the word. It's not a time to get away from the word. We need the word in the land of peace and safety also. But when we as a people, as a church as a spiritual body, are losing direction and losing focus, God will send men and women to declare His Word and to make truth of His Word come alive. And that's exactly what Haggai did to these people who had lost priorities. If we are going to summarize what I believe the book of Haggai is about, it is to examine our priorities. These were a people, a people, an ancient people, but they were not unlike us. They were not unlike us in this, is that they had lost what their priority should be. They had misguided priorities, and the word of the Lord came to them to open them up. So here's the question. Why did the temple remain incomplete? That's the question. Why was it that all there was after being there for 16 years and after stopping work for 14 years, you can put that question up, why did the temple remain incomplete? And That's a companion question for your life. Go ahead and put that question up. The first question that says why is why does God's plan for us remain incomplete? So that's a twofold question. The the question is why was the temple incomplete here in Haggai chapter 1? But the question for you is why is the work of God incomplete in your life? Because some of you, you are not where you need to be spiritually. And you are not who you believe God's made you to be. And you have not reached the level that you know that God wants you to be. And it's like the work of God has stopped in your life. You could put a year 
to that number. For these people, it was 14 years. For 14 years, God's house had not been worked on. For 14 years, they had just saw the foundation and the altar and the temple had been built on. What is it for you? Is it two years? Is it 14 months? Is it 10 years? How long has it been since the work of God has stopped? In fact, some of you are living your spiritual life as a memorial of what used to be. Remember when we laid the foundation? Remember when we built the altar? That was pretty good, wasn't it? We came all the way from Babylon and we're the only ones who came. All the rest of the people stayed in Babylon. Look what we've done. But it doesn't change the fact the work of God stopped. God had called them to complete the temple. So it is in our life. We are called by God to ever-increasing glory. That's a, a phrase. Do you, do you understand what that means? It means the glory of God. His presence ought to increase in our life. We ought to get closer to the Lord. We ought to hunger for Him more. It's not about resting in yesterday's experience and reminiscing on what He did in the past. It's about moving forward into what He has today because we are now His temple and He wants His temple to be complete and whole to glorify Him. You see, the problem is this, is that everything started out really good. Everything really started out good. I want to invite you to turn to Ezra chapter 3. Because when the exiles first returned to Jerusalem and started building the temple, things were really on target. Things were going the way they wanted it to go. And in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, it talks about the foundation of the Lord being laid. Now, in our context in Haggai, this was 16 years earlier or 14 years earlier. And it says in, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. And I'm in verse 11, and I love these next couple of verses, or this, this verse in particular. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Why? Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. What a great celebratory verse. And you go look back at the passage and the people had accomplished something great. They had come back from 70 years of captivity. They had returned to the land. They had rebuilt the walls and now they had laid the foundation for the temple. And we see in their celebration and shouting and excitement... And a lot of us can reflect in our life of those defining moments when God does something great in our lives and we just know it's God and we're proud and we know that God's doing a great work. But why has the work of God stopped? Why did the work of God stop in the temple? Write it down if you're taking notes. A great start doesn't guarantee long-term success. An exciting beginning. Momentum at the start. If you're ahead of schedule, if you're ahead of the curve, there is a sense within us, if you take any example in the natural world, that we want to relax, we want to take things easy. But just because we start out right doesn't mean we're going to finish the project. In fact, early success can sometimes inhibit long-term growth. 
early success sometimes can cause us to relax and cause us not to press in and cause us to feel like we are so ahead of schedule that we can just relax and we can go look out for our house. God's house is ahead of schedule. God's house is being taken care of. We've already laid the foundation. We've already placed the altar. Let's go spend some time building our house. Despite the glorious beginning, after two years of starting on the temple, the work stopped. And then discouragement came in. Adversity came in. And this isn't in the Bible, but I can just imagine one day by day, one less worker shows up. Day, week by week, there's less of a crowd. Several months going by, there's no leadership, there's no direction. The work is stopped. You see, many times, when we get a great beginning, it fools us to think that we're not going to face adversity. We are. You know, if you're going to do anything great in life, whether it's build a great marriage, raise children, start a God-exalting business, the start a church for that matter, the beginning is exciting because there's dreams and there's vision. But after the beginning and after the beginning of the celebration, it will happen. Adversity comes in and challenges come in. And if you're not prepared as God's people, if we're not prepared to face the challenges, then we get discouraged. And that's why so much of our preaching and teaching today, it's so great to hear, but it doesn't have long-term sustainability. Because when ministers don't prepare God's people for adversity, and all they say is it's only blessing and it's only prosperity, you know, God does bless us and God does prosper us. But it's just not biblical to say that's the only thing we have. We do have challenges. We do have adversity. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And later on, Paul wrote in, in I believe it's First or Second Timothy, that it's impossible to live a godly life and not face persecution. That's just the facts. And so it is with these. They laid the, they laid the foundation of the temple. And if they thought it was a good start and it was going to be easy from that point on, they fooled themselves because adversity will come, and it did come. But now Haggai's come into the picture. And he said, hey, listen, the work's not done, people. The work's not done. Why is it that the temple wasn't being built? And why is it that the work of God stops in our life? I believe it's this, and you can write this down. It's easier to delay sometimes than to face a challenge or to risk failure. Isn't it easy always to put stuff off? It's easy to say that someday we'll get more involved in church. Someday we'll go someday we'll go meet those neighbors that we've lived by for a few years that don't appear to be Christian. Someday I'm really going to get serious about my spiritual development. Someday, when life is easier, we'll get involved in a 242 group then. It's so easy to delay because when we delay things, we justify. And when we delay things, it's like an excuse. Because it's really not saying no. It's not saying, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to witness. or I'm never going to tithe. or I'm never going to participate. or I'm never going to uh, spend more time with my kids. It's like, I'm just going to do it later. And so somehow that is an internal justification that says, well, we'll get to it later. And that could be because we don't want to put the energy there, but it also could very well be that we don't want to risk failure. But delay is easy. It was easy for these people to delay. They laid the foundation, but for 70 years they hadn't been there. 
The work was hard. The, the, the scripture tells us in verse 6, they didn't have a lot of money. They had suffered through a drought. They had suffered through crop failure. They had hostile enemies that were trying to discourage them. And then, beyond that, I'm sure they remembered the easy times in Babylon. Our memory is really funny because for most of us, we only remember the good things. We don't remember the adversity. You know, good old days syndrome only focuses on those positive memories. And every era of our life has both great things and great challenges. It's never all good. It's never all bad. Good and bad, they come together. And yet, it was easy for them to reflect and say things were better. And this is where, look at verse 2. This was the excuse God spoke. They would say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. The time's not yet come. Doesn't that sound spiritual? The time has not come. It's not God's timing. Sometimes we can have really spiritual sounding excuses that prevent us from doing what we know in our heart we need to be doing. The time has to come. I'm waiting for a special time. You know, if God's put something in your heart, unless you have a clear no or a clear wait from Him, come on, let's start building. Get the building material. Get the timber. Get to work. Why delay? The greatest gap in life is between a great idea and the first step. I look at that. If those of you who get to know me in a personal way know that I am an idea person, you wouldn't, the Lord just gives me ideas all the time or, and, uh, and I'm always analyzing myself because it's a really scary thing to be this guy who comes up with all the great ideas but never implements them. And uh, so, so now I track those things in my life. And I have an internal system where I say, what am I doing to take a first step? Because a first step is always the hardest step. The people, they, they couldn't necessarily speak against the idea of building God's temple. Because who would think it would be bad to rebuild the temple? But they spoke against the timing. It's just not time to do that. I think about that in our spiritual development as a church. I think I've talked to many, many other ministers who, you know, have started churches, are leading churches. They talk about certain spiritual development, and it's easy to say, well, it's just not time yet. The problem is, when we always say it's not time yet, that time never comes. If there's God wants to do something in the hearts of his people, we have to respond and move forward. But why is it the temple wasn't built? Well, the answer is obvious in point three. It's without the approval of God. There's no advancement. And God's approval had left the people. God's approval had left these exiles. You can see in verse six. In verse six it says this, You have planted much but harvested little. That gets discouraging if we're always investing and never getting a return. That can be discouraging. Why is that? Why is it that that when we sometimes plant, but we don't harvest? I believe that it's clear. The reason these people didn't get a harvest is because their priorities were wrong. They were worried about their house instead of God's house. They're putting their house first before God's house. And I just believe bluntly that America, one of the reasons that we're in a bad financial situation is because we have wrong priorities. We have spent money we don't have from our government down to our individual consumers. And all of us have a measure of guilt. So I cast no stones. I just say that, Lord, give us wisdom for the future. 
It's not God's fault that we're not reaping a harvest. It's our fault that we have not put the priorities where we need to be. And here simply is, we're materialistic people. Bottom line. We're materialistic people. So that's why we don't get the harvest that we plant. Verse 6 goes on and says, You eat, but never have enough. Do you know that when you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that you get more stuff and think you're going to be satisfied by a bigger house, by a nicer car, you're going to be satisfied by going to better restaurants, you're going to be satisfied by wearing nicer clothes, but all those things leave you more empty in the end. Can I tell you that I'd rather have a bowl of soup with the presence of Jesus than to have a $50 steak in strife and contention and blinded by materialism. And that's the truth. You eat, but you never have enough. It says there in verse 6, you drink, but you're not filled with drink. Drink, drink, drink. No satisfaction. And then I already referenced the end of verse 6, but I love this phrase. You earn wages only to put them in your purse with holes in it. We spend every dollar we get. And that's not the will of God. I know that in my personal life, me and my wife are rearranging some of our personal finances because we need to save more. And that's one of my hearts for our church. I believe, I, I believe that, that God wants all of his people to start saving money. And I hope that we can create a culture in this church where we're all encouraging each other to save money. Because God said he's going to bless our storehouse. We're not creating internal peer pressure to feel like everyone has to have a certain financial status to be accepted or or whatever the case is. We don't look down on people for not having stuff. And hear this part. We don't look down on people for having stuff. You can be poor. You can be rich and be in this church. We don't want to demean the poor. We don't want to demean the rich. We just don't want to be focused on stuff. We don't want to be focused on materialism. We don't want to create a culture where we have this internal pecking order that is based off material wealth, not spiritual richness. And when we as a people begin to say, hey, we're going to create a culture and we're going to save and we're going to be financially responsible, then all of a sudden the money won't shoot right through our pockets like it has been. So going on, In verse 11, he says something really interesting. God says, I called for a drought on the fields. Now, I want to mess some of your theology up here. God called for a drought? God can't do that. Why not? Why can't he? Does God have to follow our rules? Does God always have to send his rain? I said last week it's a seasonal rain. God called a drought on these people because they had the wrong priorities. You understand that? They were building their house instead of God's house, and he called for a drought on the field. Can you imagine the people binding Satan and binding the spirit of this and binding the spirit of that, and the whole time they were the problem because they were living under the wrong priorities. God had sent the drought. God had said, I can't bless these people because they don't care about my house. They care about their own house. And he sent the drought Going on in verse 11, he sent the drought on the grain, the new wine, the oil. What's significant about those? Those were the three prominent crops these Jewish people would grow. Grain, 
new wine and oil. Their finances weren't blessed because God had sent a drought. They neglected the Lord. Listen to this. They neglected the Lord. They didn't put him first, and God neglected them. He did. He neglected them even in a financial situation. So I'm going to ask you three questions that I believe Hosea, excuse me, not Hosea, but Haggai asked the people. Here's the first question. What matters more, your house or God's house? It says Hosea, but that's my fault. I meant to write Haggai. Haggai's questions. What matters more, your house or God's house? Because when the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord cut through their excuses and it cut through their poor priorities. And he had the man of God say, listen, no more excuses. You have said in verse 4, it's that you have said that, that uh, it's not the time to build God's house. But in verse 4, the word of the Lord says, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled homes? While the house, while this house, meaning the temple, remains a ruin? There was a problem here. And the problem was not that God's people lived in nice homes. God has nothing against nice homes. The problem is God's people lived in nice homes while his home hadn't been worked on in 14 years. And that's where the problem was. And I want to connect this to our spiritual life and to our personal life and our personal development. Because some of us, let's get away from the real estate here. Let's get away from the word pictures of just houses. I want to talk about your spiritual life. Some of us have quit building a spiritual house. And we're so busy pursuing our business. And we're we're so busy pursuing the American dream, not God's dream. We're so busy worshiping our children and their activities. And that has become an idol in our life. We have children worship now. We're so busy doing those things that the house of God does not get worked on anymore. There's no spiritual pulse in our life. There's no new passion for God. There's no new love for God. Can I tell you is that a thriving, moving church that's doing something great is not just for the people who have raised their kids and don't have anything else to do. It's a family altar. It's a family church. We take our family and we build the house of God, not just the institutional church, but we build a spiritual house in our homes and in our individual lives. The problem is wrong priorities. Being content to letting our spiritual development come to a standstill because we want to develop ourselves and we want to be happy and we want to advance. Can I tell you that that is wrong? There's something wrong when we put more effort into our personal fulfillment than into our spiritual development. So the question is, what matters more? Your house or God's house? What matters more? And you don't have to answer that question verbally because you answer it with your life. You answer it with your attention. You answer it with your finances. You answer it with your time. It's a question between you and God. What matters more? His house or your house? He goes on and look at verse 5. He says this, Give careful thought to your ways. Again in verse 7, he uses that same phrase in verse 7. Give careful thought to your ways. That 
Hebrew phrase literally means, what road is your heart on? Give careful thought to what road you're on. What road are you on? And that question implies strongly what direction is your life headed? And so that's the second question I believe Haggai is asking us, or Hosea, but I think it's Haggai. Second question is this, which direction is your life headed? That's what, verse 5, consider your ways. Verse 7, consider your ways. Consider what road you're on. What direction is your life headed? Because if you get on the wrong road, it'll take you away from the will of God. You understand that? You're either on the road to God or you're on a road that's taking you away from God. What road are you on? And the prophet said that in verse 5 and verse 7. He said this, he said, consider your ways. Consider your road. What road are you on? Matthew chapter 7 says it this way. Jesus asked the same question. He said this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter it. Which road are you on? Are you on that narrow road that not many find that leads to Christ? Are you on that broad, easy road just living the same way everyone else lives? Do you understand statistically that there's no difference between the behavior of a Christian and a non-Christian, according to sociologists who have done repeated surveys. Because we're on the same road, everybody else. What road are we on? Here's, here's the last question that I want to ask you. But before, the last question is this. When will God's work in your life begin again? When will God's work in your life begin again? Look at verse 8. The prophet said this, Go up into the mountain and bring down timber and build the house. Haggai, he said clearly to the people, it is wrong that the house of God's not being worked on while you live in paneled houses. And what was his response? Now you go up to the mountain and get timber and come down and start getting to work. Get busy doing the work of the Lord. God's call to us is a call to work. It's a call to activity. It's a call to get back to building the spiritual house. 